Welcome to Stories of Recovery, a Mar Recovery Resources production from Mar Addiction Treatment Centers. I'm Matt Shebb. Herschel was stuck in a rut, but he didn't think he was an alcoholic. He felt a lack of purpose and direction, but he just thought that he was binge drinking a few nights a week. Whenever he ended up in jail as a result of his drinking, a family member would bail him out. Then, at 29, he had a car wreck. He woke up in the hospital, handcuffed to the bed. This time, his parents said he had to go to Mar for treatment, or they were done with him. When he arrived at Mar, he was surprised to find out that people in recovery weren't miserable. In fact, he himself even began to experience moments of joy and sobriety. He was also able to learn about the disease that he was up against. He talks about how his family members also benefited from the family program, which helped them learn how to protect themselves from the disease. Here's Herschel. I can tell you where I was when I got here. So I was working at a restaurant, at a country club technically, but I was like a restaurant manager, which I've been doing for like three years. And the previous seven years, I had worked as a waiter at that restaurant. Mm-hmm. And um, I had had some issues with drugs and alcohol in the past, like in high school and stuff. I smoked a lot of weed. I didn't really do a ton of drinking, but I did other drugs as well in high school. And then I got to college and things really went off the rails. Um, I'm from Michigan, so I was like far from home, and um, I got kicked out of school, and I started working at this restaurant, and as anybody who is an alcoholic and works in a restaurant will tell you, it's like, it's not a good place to chill out with that stuff. It's a good place to make it much, much worse, so right. that's where I was at, and I had like had a couple DUIs, like, and I did a lot of like blackout drinking, and ended up driving home blackout drunk repeatedly. Like those are some of the worst moments was like waking up at home and not knowing, like not remembering how I got there. But what happened was I was uh, a night just like all the other ones where I was like, after work, we go out to the bar and we have a bunch of drinks. And then I got in the car to drive home. I don't remember any of this. And uh, I got in a car accident. Like I rear ended somebody. And uh, I got taken to the hospital because I had beat myself up pretty good. And I woke up chained to the hospital bed, which was unpleasant way to wake up. Particularly when you don't remember how you got there. Um, <clears throat> I remember I like woke up and realized that I was in the hospital. And I was like, I got to get out of here. And I tried to move. And that's when I realized I was chained to the bed. And I was like, that was a pretty good call. <laughs> if I hadn't done that, I would have been gone. And... Uh, So I went to jail and um, I've been, I had a DUI before, but my sister bailed me out when I was, I went out to Atlanta, I had a DUI here. My sister bailed me out and like got me through DUI school and all that stuff. And it was gone. But this time she was gone. I called a buddy and my parents ended up finding out. My parents came down here and they like, basically were like, you either have to go to treatment or we're done with you completely. And I was like 29, about to be 30. And I was like, I don't want to spend my 30th birthday in rehab. That sounds like a really bad plan. Um, so, but my dad was like, we're going, you're going tomorrow or goodbye, basically. Um, and, uh, and I think this is part of the reason why it was so hard for me to believe I was an alcoholic at first is because like I held down that job as a restaurant manager. I wore a suit to work every day. I like, I didn't drink at work. 
And that's not 100% true. Like I drank at the end of work. Sure. I right. I mean, you work at a restaurant, there's shift drinks at the end of every shift. That's pretty natural. And like I would go out and get wasted two or three nights a week. But I wouldn't, I didn't drink every day. So like, is that out of control? Well, I don't know. I think binge drinking three nights a week is kind of out of control. And like I would drink very heavily. And one thing I didn't realize until later was how unhappy I was in the maybe the two years leading up to Mar. And we were the place was closed on Monday, so we would always get go out and just tie one on on Sunday nights. And I'd wake up every Monday for about two years swearing off alcohol. I was like, there's just no way I can do this again. I was like, I got terrible hangovers. And I just every Monday I was just like laid up. I just lie in my house and recover from Sunday night. And for about two years, I think every Monday I was like, I'm never doing this again. And by Wednesday, I was doing it again. And like, I didn't even recognize at the time the insanity of that continued promise to myself. I mean, the 99th time, I was just as sure I was going to work as I was the first time. So when I think of out of control, I think of like, you know, like getting in gunfights and like, you know, wrecking cars, which is what eventually happened. But things didn't feel out of control, but they for sure were. So, I mean, that's like maybe a testament to how delusional I was that things seemed like they were okay because they clearly were not. And like, I was, I was like lying to people and I was stealing from people and I didn't have any real friends. I mean, I look back and I'm like, of the people I knew before I got sober, I probably talked to like three or four of them, maybe a handful at most. Because those are the people I actually cared about, and the, everybody else just kind of disappeared very, very quickly. I had a lot of I had a lot of drinking buddies and very few actual human relationships. Again, I was pretty delusional about yeah. the situation, and that is really what it boils down to: is like I was lonely and I was depressed and I was sick and tired of living that way, and I had no way out. I did not know how to fix it, and. Like you were saying, until, and this is why I think that my particular bottom was important for me is because I had like an apartment and a car and a job and like an income, which I did not save any money. That income all went right out the door immediately, but I could afford the lifestyle I was living. And until that was not possible, I was never going to get sober. Yeah. Like until I lost the car and the job and the apartment, which I did all in that one night. Um. I, uh, I, I was never going to, like, I had to get, that was like me getting desperate was losing all that stuff. And that was like, it was so important for me to like be miserable and broken and desperate when I got to AA. Cause otherwise, like I think about like I had some consequences, but they were pretty minor. Right. Mm-hmm. I went to jail, but my sister bailed me out and like drove me to DUI school when I had to go until I got my license back. And then things were back to normal. It was all very much like I got taken care of. Until my parents were like, we're done taking care of you. They're like, we're going to send you to this place and then we'll see. But there's nothing that's guaranteed after that. And I needed those kind of dire consequences in order to listen to anybody. So, And that was in that place that you just referenced, that was Mar? That was, okay, gotcha. That That's powerful to hear too. And I think especially for family members, because, you know, a lot of the people who visit our website and might be listening to this um, are family members and just, and I worked in admissions before. It's really hard to stress the importance 
of holding those boundaries, you know, like, and it's like, it feels like the cruelest thing in the world when you're doing it, when you're used to jumping in and saving all. So it fe- like our minds are telling us this is so cold or, but now you, you on the other side of it, you're like, there's no way I would have without those consequences. And my parents being like, I don't know what else we can do for you. Um, yeah. One thing that, uh, and I, like you said, like it feels really cold and I don't really have the experience that my family does. Like, I don't know what that feels like. So I'm not trying to like pretend like I have all this experience with that, but I know that my parents did the thing that they thought was best for me. Like my first DUI happened when I was like 18 and I was back home and my dad came and bailed me out and like got me a lawyer and it all got, I was pretty young and the cop did some stupid stuff. It doesn't matter, but I got out of that. Right. And my dad was like, we talked about this after like years later, after I've been sober for a few years, he was like, we did what we thought we would be happy. He's like, my son, my, my boy is in prison or in jail. He's like, I should get him out. And then the same thing with my sister. The next time I called her and she was like, we got to go get him out. So they went and got like, they're doing what they think is right. And I understand that. But like I said, and I don't know what would have happened had my dad left me there when I was 18. Or if my sister left me there when I was 25. But like, I needed someone to really say, it's over, right? We're done until you, until you do some work on yourself. And to like really put me out of my own. And like, I, I surely don't fault my family for the stuff they did. And my dad and my parents came to family week and they learned a lot. They, they told me that, 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 that they learned a lot. And that was one of the things that they learned, they, they said, was like that, that detaching is super important because I saw this thing the other day about this, like a meme on Facebook where it was like, detaching is not like stopping loving someone. It's like not letting their problems become your problems, like not letting their problems influence your life. And I think that's really important. Um, but like the recognition that they were doing what they thought was right. And it turned out they couldn't have been more wrong. Like just to me, like my parents are not stupid people. Yeah. Like just, this is just way out of their area. They just don't have any experience with it. And so they did what parents do, which is look after their kids. And it turned out it's like so counterintuitive. I imagine it's so counterintuitive for a parent to think that the best they can do for their kid is to leave them in jail. Yeah. I get how weird that would feel for a parent. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's like, it, and you wouldn't, and you wouldn't know to look for that unless you knew about the disease of addiction or, or how addiction works, you know? So, um, do you remember that first day that you got to Mar? Yeah, sure, sure, sure. What was sure. What? Well, I remember a couple of things about it. I was sitting like in the, um, I was like a clinic basically. And I was sitting in the, like in the doctor's office and I remember this guy came up to me and he was like super friendly. And I was like, that's really weird. Like I didn't expect anybody to be happy. Right. Cause we were in rehab and it was miserable. Right. That's what right. Rehab was miserable. And he was like, he like he introduced himself to me and like shook my hand and he was like really energetic and outgoing. And then like, I guess feeling school got out. And so the guys came, they grabbed me and they threw all my stuff in the back of a truck and we drove back to the apartments. I'm like, I didn't have, I assumed we were going to be living in like some kind of like a locked down dormitory or something. And I was like, when we got to the building, I was like, this building's not big enough to have 
enough space for all the people who I think are going to be here. And I remember we went back to the apartments and I was like, these are just like regular apartments. Mm-hmm. Like that was the, the, the thing that surprised me the most was how not like incarcerated I was. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what do we do? And they were like, I don't know. We're probably going to watch TV and we're going to make dinner eventually. And what do you mean? What do we do? And I was like, I don't know. Like I assumed there was something like horrible that I was going like, to, that I was in store for. We went to a meeting and Maybe it wasn't so much exactly the first day, but the first few days, I was really struck by how not miserable everybody was. Like they, maybe I just had a good community, but the guys were like in good moods and we'd joke around. And these guys were like, we'd go to like Starbucks at 7.15 and we'd get a cup of coffee and we'd hang out outside Starbucks. And then we'd go to a meeting at eight, right? And we did that like almost every day. And it was like some of the, like I remember like, just having like a really good time doing those things. And like just how surprised I was that rehab wasn't misery. I think it was important for me to see that. I remember we used to go to this meeting called Mount Vernon on Chamby Dunwoody, or it was on Roberts Drive actually. But, and it was the first meeting I, I it was like a Thursday nights they had a, Monday nights they had a speaker and there's probably like a hundred people there. And I'd, we'd walk in and it'd be like, it sounded like a cocktail party. Everyone's like hugging each other and high-fiving and shaking hands and saying hey to people. And I was like, what the hell is going on here? It was like just so outside my experience that I didn't really know how to handle it. And I was like, and now that I'm in that, like, now that I am kind of one of the people at the meeting I go to every week, or I did before all the pandemic stuff happened, but that's like a big meeting with a lot of loud guys. And I'm, I'm not the loud guy, but I'm like happy and I feel comfortable there. And so there's like, I'm never going to be the outgoing guy who's like shaking everybody's hand when they walk in and like, Hey, what's up, bud. But like, I can be happy and comfortable and really enjoy that atmosphere in a way that that first meeting I walked into, I was like, I don't know what's going on here. Right. Now I, I kind of know what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> now I'm like, I get it. These people are not miserable anymore. And they're like, actually their lives are getting better. Um, the other thing I thought of was I remember I worked at this chicken finger place with that guy, so that same guy, Scott. And I remember one day we were driving to work and we were sitting in his car and we were listening to like some comedian on a CD and it's funny guy. And we all started laughing and I was like, we were all, I was like laughing really hard. And I was like, I was like, Oh my God. I was like, I just had like a big deep, like belly laugh with a bunch of guys and I haven't had anything to drink. It was the first time that had happened to me in so long that I like, I was like, I didn't even think about it. And I was like, Oh my God, that was amazing. And that was like kind of the first moment. That was probably like a month or six weeks in or something to about six weeks in the mar. And I was like, it was like a touchstone for me moving forward. Like life can be good. I can enjoy myself even without drinking. And that was, that was, I remember that specifically. I mean, that was in 2007, so 13 years ago, and I still remember it pretty clearly. Clearly, was pretty important. So, and so, so you're going to meetings. How is the like settling into? And I guess the community part is kind of woven all into that, like the Mar community, because you're going to meetings together and all that. What's it like doing the like the day treatment, like? Um, with the counselors and all that, how are you warming up to that as you, you go through? So that at first was weird. At first it was like, I didn't know what was happening a lot of the time. 
there was like a lot of these first step inventories and um, these life stories. And I kind of figured out what that was and I started to be assigned those things. And those are really good. And those helped me connect more with the guys, like hearing them, hearing their life stories, obviously you kind of get to know them, but hearing their first step inventories kind of gives you insight into like the things that they did. And as much as anything, having done it yourself or like hearing them do it and then doing it yourself and then hearing others do it, you're like, it's, there's a connection because it's all the same, right? Mm -hmm. As much as I want to think I'm special and unique, like this disease makes me a lot like the other guys who have this disease. And as much as that me, it might be crushing to my ego that I'm not a super special person in every way. It's like very important for my like, like socialization and like connection to the world around me to see that I'm not that different. My problem was always that I was either worse than you or better than you. There was never anything in the middle. Right. Um, and so a lot of the stuff we did there, like, and it was repetitive, like, the first up inventories, like it was every week, there was like a life story and maybe an inventory and then like some sessions where you like talk about the inventories. There was like relapse prevention stuff where they talked about things that you have to do every day to make sure that you stay sober and like what's your routine going to look like. And we also had primary groups, which I assume they still have. That's yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I had a primary counselor who was the greatest dude ever. I love that guy. I still love him. And I remember this because other people have had totally had very different experiences. Pretty much every day in primary, we talked about the physical allergy and the mental obsession. This guy thought that was so important and he's totally right. And we talked about it over and over and over again. And, <laughs> I was, and it was really important, like particularly the first month, right? That was the first month of my recovery. And like, it just got beat into my head that what makes me different from my fellows, what makes me different from the people who are alcoholics is a physical allergy, the mental obsession. And I walked out of feeling school with no doubt in my mind that those things were present in me. Mm-hmm. I remember I told my life story and I went to primary afterwards and I said to my primary, I was like, he was there. And I was like, you heard my story. He was like, yeah. I was like, you think I'm an alcoholic? He was like, for sure. Like, <laughs> no question. Like, like we were saying before, without the like drinking a, with like a paper bag under a bridge, I wasn't sure what an alcoholic was. And so having, hearing him say that I trusted him and hearing him repeat the thing about the physical allergy, the mental obsession, like I could relate to that stuff because like I was a dude bellying up to the bar at last call to get as many shots as I could. Right. Like that's just, there's no point to that except that you just need more alcohol. In you. Yeah. It wasn't like, it wasn't like the party was continuing. I just wanted to drink as much as I could. Right. And I, I definitely obsessed about it. I thought about it all the time. So like knowing that those two things are what those two things make me an alcoholic and those two things are for sure part of me. I think that really helped me identify as an alcoholic in a way that I hadn't before. And then Bill Anderson, who's now, I think the CEO or something. Yeah. He's the CEO now. Yeah. He was the primary counselor when I was there. Okay. And he was not my primary counselor, but I saw him in a bunch of groups and I remember the first thing I thought, Oh, and Todd, Todd Valentine was my manager. I remember Todd was the house manager. And like Todd was an alcoholic and Pat was and Dave was, but like these other, like Bill wasn't. Uh-huh. And at first when I saw him, I was like, that is one clean cut alcoholic when I first saw him. And then I found out he wasn't. And I was like, that makes more sense. 
But like Pat and Tommy and Dave, look at them. I'm like, those guys, I could for sure buy them as alcoholics <laughs> on the surface. But like, I didn't really connect with Bill because I knew he wasn't an alcoholic. And like Pat was like my favorite guy. He was just super nice. And he like, he, he, he would like his favorite response to almost anything I said was to laugh at me. And it was like very appropriate every time. <laughs> he would be laughed at for the things I was saying. Like, do you think I'm an alcoholic? And he just laughed. He was, yeah, right. Of course you are. But I didn't connect with Bill much because he wasn't. And I just like, I just, I was like, how is he going to, how am I going to be able to relate to this guy? Mm. And I sat in enough groups with him and I watched him like talk to guys about the things they said in their first step inventories. And like, I went, I actually did the um, family week twice. And he sat in one of the, I guess they call it, what do they call that group that everybody dreads now? Impact group. And he sat in those and I saw him like interacting with the parent, with the families and the stat and the, and the patients, clients, I don't know what the right word is. And I was like, this guy knows what he's talking about. And then I started to listen to the stuff that he said instead of just tuning him out when he was talking. And I think I learned a ton from Bill. Mm. And like, he has like a lot, he had like, he was very smart. He had a lot of education about this stuff. And, and this is a part I didn't really give any credit to. He had a lot of experience with people like me. And like more than anything, I think that last part like made it so that the stuff he said, I should have been listening to more. And once I did that, it like really opened up my, like I, I became much more open to almost anybody's interpretation or uh, perspective on my addiction, particularly guys, guys who've made the, like Bill made a career out of dealing with people like me. Mm-hmm. And I just wrote him off for like, you know, three months because he wasn't an alcoholic. And like I said, it was easier for me to connect with the guys with the count with the staff members who were alcoholics, particularly at first. But like once I kind of had that breakthrough, I feel like it was at one of the impact groups where I saw him like just like like really break down the issues that were that were occurring in real time in front of him between this family and this client. And I was like, that's amazing. I was like, why have I this guy has been here this whole time. I've been completely like overlooking this resource that I should have been taking advantage of. And I started to do that a lot more. Um, even when I was in three quarters, I attended in three quarters, like once a week, maybe once every two weeks, I'd like come up to Mar and just like wander through the halls and say hello to whoever wasn't busy. And like Bill, as much as anybody was one of those guys who I would go talk to. And I mean that they like, they liked it that I did that. I think. Mm-hmm. that engendered a lot of goodwill for me because they were like this guy's checking in you know i didn't have much to say um so that was a that was an experience i remember very clearly with bill i wanted to ask too about something you brought up a couple times of uh the family week mm-hmm. how was that helpful for you in terms of relating to your folks um and your sister sounds like like your parents and your sister both participated so, or all participated. The first time my parents were out of the country, and so my sister and her husband came. Oh, okay. And then the, and then when I was in three quarters, it came around again, and my parents came that time. So I, I went through with the impact group and all that stuff twice. So tell me about what what that was like, and and if if that was helpful, and and how so. Yeah, I mean, there are a couple of things about it. One. That the a couple of things that strike me. One is that my parents came and they had never been to Al-Anon. Like all of their AA information came from my dad's friend who lived here, who I don't think I talked that much. And the stuff I would tell him on the phone when I was at Mar. 
and like they might have done some other research but they had no like real deep knowledge of it and so like they got some education about it and they went there's a they think they do an al-anon meeting for for the for the families during one of the days they're here and so like my parents got to a place where they like i realized i wasn't going to be able to take advantage of them like i had before and that was oddly comforting to me Mm. like I was like, I'm not in a position to hurt them anymore because they're protecting themselves. And when I realized that was happening, I was like, that takes a big weight off my shoulders. And I'm, I mean, there's an element of uh, arrogance in there where like, I'm so powerful that I have the power to destroy their lives. But like, I kind of did, like I did before, like I definitely made them miserable. So like, I realized that I wasn't going to be able to do that anymore. And that was really important, I think. And, um, the impact groups had like kind of two, uh, like I kind of reached two conclusions. One was like, it was good to in front of those, it was being in front of all of my friends, like my, the other, the other patients, clients, whatever, having all them there and standing up and doing that was more powerful than just doing it by myself. Like having like that, it wasn't like an audience, but it was like, this like community and standing up and doing it in front of a community felt more impactful than it would have had I like I, I made my amends with my parents after that. And it wasn't quite like it was almost more powerful to just get up there and be like, I understand that my addiction has done these things to our relationship. Like the reason the fourth step, the fifth step says God, ourselves, and another person is because that other person is like super important. Mm-hmm. Like if I just admit it to myself and to God, it's like it's still there. But if I say it out loud, it's like in the world. If I say it out loud in front of my parents, it's big. And if I say it out loud in front of my parents and a room full of people, it's like really real at that point. And that was like, that was how my experience impacted me there. But I also watched a lot of other guys do it and seeing them do, seeing them do it was really important for me. And I remember this very specifically, like this guy got up and he had like, did you say out of control? Like before we were talking about that, like his life was way out of control. He'd like done some ridiculous things to his family. Like he got up and said the things and then they get to respond and they like tore into him. And it was like a whole thing. And we were like, oh, like look around like Jesus. This is terrible. And then the group ended and we went outside and we were having a cigarette and like they were just talking like normal again. And I was like, what the hell? And I realized it's like we're family. And so like, yes, I did terrible things to them. And it's going to take a long time to repair those wounds. But in the meantime, we're still family and we can still be civil to each other and even laugh and love each other. And like that, like idea that I could have, that I could, I could admit these things and I could confess to these shortcomings. And then my family, families would still accept me. Like that was really important to see. And I saw it like right in front of me. Like I saw it with this other guy's family. I think that was my first time. So my parents weren't there. I saw this guy had this huge emotional interaction with his family then go outside and they were like, okay. They were like, where are we going to have dinner tonight? Wow. We'd be talking about that right now. Didn't you see, weren't you there? Yeah. You were there. What just happened? It's crazy. You talked about being relieved when your parents, like when your parents were kind of armed with information about, yeah, yeah. about how alcoholism works. And um, do you, so looking back on those times when you were, manipulating them um did you 
know at the time that you were manipulating them do you think or what what are your thoughts on that like did you were you kind of conscious of the manipulation or was it just crisis mode all the time and you were pulling them into the chaos yeah i mean i don't i would love to say that i I wasn't aware yeah love to be like no i just was it was just desperation but like i started lying to my parents and stealing from them when i was like 10 or 11 like long before i ever had a drink or a drug like that was standard practice for me like i needed something they had it i would figure out a way to get it and if that meant just taking it without permission i would do that but like I lied to my dad all the time about like selling back books to school for money, right? Like my dad would pay for all my textbooks and I would sell them back and I'd tell him I didn't do that. Like that's not like that's intent. That's straight up intentional lying. And I knew I was doing it and I knew that I, I and I knew I was doing it. I knew I was going to do it the next semester too. Hmm. Right. I was like, this is one of my plans. And like, I would like, I mean, I don't know how much line there was like it was a little different i didn't live with my parents much while i was in my like the depths of my addiction it was mostly they were in michigan or maryland where they live now or I, and i was here so they weren't around a lot to see it i talked to them once or twice a week and um i would just like they'd be like where are you going and i would just make something up right and i remember my mom telling me once so she came to she came down here for business or something and she and i went out to dinner and she dropped me back off in my place. I was living in this house off campus, off Georgia Tech's campus with like six other guys. It was like the most destructive environment I could have been in. She dropped me off there. And she told me this much later. She was like, when I dropped you off, she was like, I'd never felt more helpless. Mm. She was like, I knew that things were not okay with you. And I had no idea what to do about it. And I was like, I don't, I don't, I can't even imagine how that must have felt. But like, just know, like you drop and you're like, things are going to go wrong and I can't stop it from going wrong. Like, I mean, again, I don't know what it's like to be a mother, obviously, but like it would, I just imagine that that must be a terrible, terrible feeling. And like, I don't do that to my parents anymore. Yeah. Like some of that is just like, you make the amends and you do the ninth step, like you say the things, but like the amends are the years of not, doing that to them where eventually like I think my parents don't, when I get off the phone with them now, they they're pretty certain that the things I said to them were true mm-hmm. and that I'm not going to go and do something reckless and endanger my life or the life of anyone else tonight. Right. And uh, I mean, but I, to get back to your original question, the manipulation of my parents before I got sober was completely intentional. Mm. I did it because I needed something from them. I did that to everybody. It wasn't just that. Mm. Yeah. Right. It wasn't like it was specifically them, but since they were the closest to me, they were had the most, I had the most opportunities to do it to them. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. No, that was a great answer. Um, so if you think, I mean, 13 months in treatment, that's a long time. And if you think about like who you were the day you got there versus, and what you were expecting from treatment versus who you were when you left at the end, like what, what do you think was the biggest change between then and in that 13 months? So one thing I didn't realize until I had been here, been at Mar for a while was how scared I was of everything. The big book talks about a hundred forms of fear. And I was like, I, I think I had all, all, all 100. I think I got all of them. And like everything scared me, like new people I didn't know, 
a car I'd never driven before, right? A new job, just like going outside, like everything scared me. And I was, there was a lot less of that at when I left. Like I was much less fearful of the world around me. Um, I also like, so I worked all 12 steps before I left Mar and like, it turns out that they're not just whistling Dixie when they talk about like a change in perspective. And it's like the most important thing that I can, that I can hope for is that I look at the world differently now. Like I said before about that, always below, I'm always worse than you or better than you. And like, I got to a place where I was okay being the same as you or just a little bit worse, just a little bit like I'm okay. Like not having to compare myself to everybody at all times. And I say that it's not even remotely a hundred percent of the time that I feel this way. Right. Yeah. Right. I never felt that way before. And I had like experienced that at Mar, like the, uh, like being okay when I'm going home to see my family to just like be there and like wash dishes and help out. And like, that's okay. And like, when I go up to the lake with the guys, like, not having to be the center of attention at all times, not having to have the best story, not having to lie. Oh, did you see that movie? Yeah. I never saw that movie, right? It's like the classic, what, what, what's the point of that lie? And like, I, I think not having to do that anymore, like it really, it's so much easier to live life when I don't have to be the best at everything or at least try to be the best at everything. I don't have to, and I'm not always worried that I'm the worst at everything. Mm-hmm. Like it's like that. So like, I think those two things, like, an easing of my constant fear of everything around me and like that kind of like a change in perspective where I don't have to be like, it turns out the world does not revolve around me. Yeah. Right. I learned that at Mar. The world does not revolve around me. And I still have trouble believing it. Sometimes I still do. Sometimes I'm like, are you sure? (laughs) Like it seems like it does sometimes, but I know it doesn't. And I like, there's that. There's also, and I don't, I don't, I don't want to give you three answers because you said no, that was most. No, 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 no. That was great. There were th- yeah, give me uh, three. This will be the last one, I promise. So I remember when I was, before I got sober, even before I started drinking, I was always like, something popped into my head. I want this thing. It never, never was there like a, there's no, there's, there's no circuit breaker there. Where it's like, maybe you shouldn't have that thing. It's like, I want that thing. I'm going to figure out a way to get it. I need to like buy as many baseball cards as my buddy Spencer, I'm going to steal money so I can do that. And I, when I was drinking and using, it was like, I want to, I want to get high, go get high. All right. I want to get drunk, go get drunk. doesn't matter what you're doing. doesn't matter what you should be doing. Just do those things. And like, I, I, I think of it in my head as a circuit breaker, which is why I said that. Like there's no, there was no, it was just, there was just think it, do it. Mm-hmm. There was like no reflection of any kind. And when I left Mar, there was some of that. Like I would consider things before I did them. And I know that sounds obvious. Maybe if you're like not someone like me, but like, don't just do whatever you think when you think it, of course not. Right. But like, that was basically how I lived my life. And the ability to think something and not do it. Like that's, again, it sounds like a small thing, but it's huge for me. I can like walk through my day being like, there's a meeting tonight. I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go all day. I'm thinking I'm not going to go. And at the end of the day I go, <laughs> right? Like that is just, that's so different from the way I used to live. Like just the ability to like hold a thought in my head like that and then not do it. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's really, it's a, that's a, that was like a watershed change for me. To, mm-hmm. yeah, so. 
what has been what has life been like since you've gotten out of Mar? So I left Mar. I got this job. So when I was at Mar, I worked at a Gold, at Guthrie's Golden Fried Chicken Fingers for about six weeks. Then I worked at Starbucks, and then I got this job tutoring. And I kind of wanted to be a teacher. That was kind of my goal, but I couldn't get a job as a teacher, so I got a job tutoring. I did that for six years, and like I held that job for six years, and I was like a responsible and reliable employee. And they like promoted me a couple of times, and then I got a job with my current job teaching at uh, school. Like I'm a teacher. I've always wanted to be a teacher, and now I'm a high school mm. teacher. It's like exactly what I've always wanted to do. And like my relationships with my family have vastly improved. Like I said, there's a lot of trust that has that has been built. Um, my dad's mother passed away. I was like a couple years sober, maybe three or four years sober. And my dad's like a very emotional guy. At things like like at weddings and funerals, he's like a mess. Um, which is weird because he's very like non he's like doesn't show a lot of emotion most of the time, but he's like he loses it at those things. And so he asked me to deliver his eulogy at his mother's funeral. And like that's just not something that would have happened before I got sober. Like I'm not sure they would have been certain I was gonna be there. I probably would have been there, but I might not have been sober, right? But like he asked me to do that, and I was like, You sure you don't want Rebecca to do it? And my sister, he was like, I want you to do it. He was like, stop trying, trying to push this off on someone else. But it wasn't that I didn't want to do it. It's that I was just so surprised that he asked me. Right. But that's like an example of like how the relationship has shifted. Um, my sister made me the God parent of her children, hmm. which is ridiculous because I'm not, I feel like I'm not remotely responsible enough to do that. Um, but things like that, like I have closer friends than I've ever had before. Um, but like life has been good. The uh, the last question I always ask people is if you could pass on one thing to people that are listening based on your hard won experience, what would it be? The things that I was told to do at Mar and the things that I was told to do in AA worked in spite of the fact that I didn't think they were going to. So like give it a chance in the sense that you just do what you're told for a while, even if you're sure it's not going to work. Like they were like, write a four step. I was like, that's a stupid idea. And I wrote it and I did a four step and I was like, that was great. Right. turns out it was a great idea. And then they were like, I looked at step nine. I was like, there's just obviously no way I'm going to do that. Like I'm not going to go to people who have harmed and, and say, I'm sorry. And then they were like, do this. And so I did it. And I was like, it turns out that was a really good thing to do. So like there's an element of like breaking down of the ego there, right? But like do the things you're told at first and see what happens. Because things that I thought were bad ideas turn out to be really good ideas. If you're in a if you're a family if you're a family member of an alcoholic, a loved one, I suggest you go to Al Anon. Hmm. That would be my advice there. All right, that's it for this episode of Stories of Recovery. Thanks so much for joining us. If you heard something in Herschel's story that maybe reminded you of yourself or a loved one and you're looking for some answers and some help, please feel free to give our assessment team a call. It's totally free and it's totally confidential. Their number is 678-805-5131. You can also reach out through our website at marinc.org. That's M-A-R-R-I-N-C dot O-R-G. You can fill out a contact form there 
or use the chat feature in the bottom right-hand corner of the site. All right, thanks again for joining us. I'm Matt Shedd. This is Stories of Recovery, and we're already looking forward to next time.